This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... The Chicago Film Fest. Picaresque Gaming. Fu Manchu. And Sacking Rome. This episode is brought to you by Engine Publishing and Odyssey, the complete Game Master's Guide to Campaign Management. It's the fourth system-neutral book for GMs from any award winner, Engine Publishing. Written by award-winning authors Phil Vecchione and Walt Sikonowski, Odyssey is jam-packed with in-depth advice on starting, managing, and ending campaigns, although campaigns often just sort of end themselves. I guess Odyssey would help you do it when you want it to as opposed to just at random. Right. It doesn't need a chapter on ending your campaign because you've been hit by a meteor, because after that, you, you know, you have other worries, right. I suppose. Yeah. Uh, but whether you're an old hand or new to game mastering, you'll find a wealth of tips and techniques you can put to immediate use in Odyssey. A guide to starting a new campaign from coming up with the initial concept, which can be as simple as listening to Ken and Robin talk about stuff, to running a smooth first session, which is slightly less simple. Uh, tips on structuring stories handling problem players, and making your campaign thrive. Advice on actively managing every element of your campaign, stories, characters, players, risk, and change, while avoiding the common pitfalls. Examples of how every aspect of campaign management looks when handled well or badly. <laughs> it's it's important to have other examples of how to handle a campaign badly, I guess. that's. Uh... <laughs> yes, we, we could all imagine the horror stories. Um, and also how to end campaigns on a high note, including what to avoid, for example, being hit by a meteor. We're giving Cartas listeners a special discount on Odyssey, $5 off in the Engine Publishing Store using code CARTAS20. Good through November 2013 on enginepublishing.com. So the forlornness of the discarded ticket stubs and the crinkledness of the program book suggests that we are not only in the cinema hut, but in a rarefied festivalian cinema hut, in this case one in which we will look at Ken's visit to the Chicago Film Festival, which, as you know, is a small regional constellation or planetoid washed in the bright light of the vastly more important Toronto International Film Festival, but one in which can you nonetheless manage to see an assortment of cinematic goodies? Yes, um, I think that the uh, notion that the longest-running competitive film festival held in North America is a mere planetoid is perhaps uh, putting too grim a gloss on it, but... An ice rock, perhaps? Um, I, I would say that it is an exciting uh, cupier belt object. Uh, with unknown gravitational impact. But the uh, Film Fest is uh, indisputably a smaller and less brightly lit thing than Toronto, and that is, I suspect, all you really need to hear me say. And <laughs> somewhat behind the curve in terms of Toronto is really presenting a lot of what they call elevated genre stuff, mm -hmm. because that's where cinema is going right now, and Chicago is a bit still in the serious art house mode not that there's not a ton of that at uh, toronto as well but let's get down to talking about things that people will want to keep an eye out for when they show up on netflix or uh movie or similar streaming services or, or even in their own uh, art house yes and so the first uh one of these is 
a Turkish Western. It's a Kurdish called, Western, my friend. A Kurdish call Western. It a Turkish Western, and uh, women will come out of the hills and kill you, I think. There we go. That's a whole civil war averted right there. Uh, so this film is called My Sweet Pepper Land, and it's directed by Hinir Salim. Uh, what can you tell us about this? This is, uh, according to the star who is there at the Q&A, and I'm certainly willing to believe him, the first ever Kurdish Western. And pretty much the response in Kurdistan was the same as the response in Chicago and I assume everywhere else in the world when Salim said, I'm going to make a Kurdish Western, and people were like, can you do that? And his answer is this film, which it turns out the answer is yes. And it's basically, it's a it's a Western. It's the story of a slow-burning gunslinger who, after the war against Saddam, can't handle his boring civilized life, and so he's sent out to the frontier to be a sheriff. And also at this same frontier town is a charming school marm who comes across in a bad way, the local uh, rancher. Um, he is the sort of uh, like the figure from Shane, the necessary barbarian in the past, who is now an obstacle to the civilization of the frontier and therefore must be er eliminated during the course of the film. And uh, like all great Westerns, it's got a gorgeous landscape or, or at least an imposing, powerful landscape. I'm not sure it's necessarily as purely cinematically gorgeous as, say, Monument Valley, but I suspect it's considerably easier to raise sheep in it than it is in Mon Monument Valley, so it's got that going for it. And um, then, as the movie sort of, it sets itself up in this way, and it progresses, and the end is still the end of the Western, right? That the, the, the bad guy is taken down and the good guy uh, survives. But the questions of civilization remain sort of present in a way that aren't always the case in a sort of standard John Ford Western. And most interestingly, the sort of the, the, the people who play the role of the Indians in this film, the people across the border who can't be bargained with, who, as with many uh, John Ford Westerns, the sheriff is uh, wise enough to realize should be dealt with as opposed to fought, um, it are Amazons. They are female Kurdish freedom fighters fighting against Turkey, and uh, they play a fairly, I would say, more of a Greek tragedy role than even a standard Western is, uh, is, is used to seeing. And it made sort of a very interesting third act or fourth act turn. And the whole thing was, of course, worth seeing if you're a fan of the Western or if you're a fan of the Kurds, for that matter. Because it, like the Western in America, it, it's a nation-building patriotic film and therefore worth watching on that level. And uh, it's just, you know, well-acted, obviously. The, the, um, the, the school marm and the, and the sheriff are both terrific uh, in in the film, pretty much all the performances are good, and it's you know if you're if you're a fan of the western, like I say, or a fan of, of Kurdistan, it is worth seeing. And it, it, I may have given it my sort of best ranking, more of a you know oh my god a Kurdish western than out of any immediate you know this is the the searchers of Kurdistan. Well, there, there's no shame in awarding points for novelty. No, there there is no shame or for genre, and since it, this does both of them. I, that, which is not easy. I guess that's that's why it's sort of at the top. But it is a really good movie and is very much worth seeing uh, for for people who are interested in Kurds or Westerns. Now, if there were a mob of straw man detractors out there claiming that uh, Ken Height does not enjoy realist cinema, your second fave is from one of the grandmasters of Czech film, Yuri Menzel, and it's called The Don Wands. And from that, we can assume there might be a bit of a Mozartian tip. I had gone to it on the theory that it was Waiting for Guffman set in a Czech, a Czech opera house. And what it actually is, is sort of 
it looks like that on the surface, like the like the opera Don Juan. It looks like an opera buffa. It looks like sort of a light, hilarious comedy. The uh, Menzel sort of stand-in is the director of the opera who often breaks the fourth wall and, and looks at the audience and, and explains his his inner feelings and talks to us in sort of a, a middle European uh, sensible way. But as the film progresses, you begin to understand that what this actually is, like the actual opera Don Juan, it is the story of the tragic flaw of uh, people who are uh, serial seducers who get what's coming to them. And the sort of interplay between the comedy and the comedy and the tragedy and the tragedy, all of it tied together by Mozart's opera is, I mean, it's really good. I mean, Menzel, I, I don't think he's a pretty prolific director. He's done a number of films because he had a career that goes back to the early, you know, Czechoslovakian uh, cinema movement with Milos Forman and those guys. But, you know, this is, this is, you know, really, really great directing and it's done in the service of something that on the surface looks very light and airy and puffy. And people are like, Oh, Yuri Menzel obviously just wanted to take a couple of uh, years off from serious filmmaking. But the more you think about the message of the movie, the more interesting it becomes and sort of the more, uh, I guess you want to say morally grounded or morally serious it becomes. And that's, that's really kind of interesting. And for a movie based on Don Juan with all of the naked breasts that that implies in our modern age, the morality uh, is remarkably strong and the feminist sensibility is remarkably strong. The, the main female character beautifully refuses as sort of the, her leitmotif uh, to be defined by men or by male power structures and is never punished for that belief. It's really kind of impressive. And once you realize that it is not done as hilarious comedy or is not only done as hilarious comedy, and is actually a serious part of what the film's saying about gender politics and about um, the way one should behave to a woman. Uh, it is it is remarkable uh, in a lot of ways, and even more remarkable to see it coming out of someone who came out of the 68, which was not perhaps the most feminist film tradition in history. So next up is a maybe, maybe not ghost story, which is also one of the few points of overlap between my trip to TIFF and your trip to SIF, and that's Seoul from Chung Mong Hong from Taiwan. And after I saw this beautiful, weird, meditative film, I wasn't sure whether I really, really liked it or hated it. And after some thought, I realized I really, really liked it. And it looks like you came down at essentially the same point. Yeah, I think I was probably uh, guided in a good way by the fact that you recommended it, because that sort of gave me the thing to to, to sort of keep watching and, and trust that Chung Mong Hong uh, was going to deliver a film as opposed to a whole bunch of things that happened and that were filmed. And, you know, sort of then the knowledge that someone out there who knew what they were doing found it, you know, found out what figured out what, uh, what was going on or I never figured out what was going on, but figured out the sort of filmness of it. Let me keep watching. And even through that sort of, uh, fourth act where uh, everything that has happened has happened. And now we're sort of, looking at, at, at sort of a long diminuendo or a coda to the to the uh, creepy, ghosty events, um, I, I sort of kept kept it my attention up, which I think was was rewarded not just by the by the story, but also by a lot of the scenes and the and the shots that sort of closed out the the circle in terms of the montages and cinematic uh, landscapes and whatnot that that the film sort of goes back to over and over and over again. Right. And this is a story of an orchid farmer who takes in the adult son from the city who has suddenly gone catatonic 
and may or may not be possessed by a ghost, and uh, then uh, slow, beautiful weirdness unfolds, yes. uh, shall we say. With the occasional really fast weirdness that is yes. uh, beautiful in a different uh, sort of sense. Yes, there's some a, a little jolt of ultraviolence or two along the way. And so philosophically, if it's never clear whether a ghost movie is a ghost movie or can be explained psychologically, is it a genre film? Yes, because The Turn of the Screw is a genre book. And so therefore, since the classic of uncertain narrator and unknown event is a, is, is an unquestionably genre classic, then I think we can also adduce Soul, which is at least as cagey about it as Henry James, as a, a genre film. I think it's a, it's a ghost film, but it's not it's a horror film, but I don't think it, you can say that it's a genre, a ghost film. It's a, it, it's a film with a lot of points toward, especially sort of the J-horror side of ghosting, but not anything that goes over the line where you can say, oh yeah, all right, this is, this is T-horror, this is what's happening. And then that, I think, is part of what makes it so interesting to watch. Right, and uh, as far as uh, similarities are concerned, it's even closer to Uncle Boon Me, who can see his past lives from Thailand, mm -hmm. uh, then uh, J-Horror. It's got that same sort of moody treatment of its supernatural themes. Uh, the next film on your list is by Denis D'Arcourt. It's called A Pact, and you refer to it as a demon story. Is this a literal or metaphorical demon story? Well, it's it, the, you never see hellfire and you never hear smoke. And again, like uh, even more so than in Soul, you can sort of understand how the the demon um, does what he does, but you know it's 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 a German postmodern or it's a German postmodern film filmed by a Frenchman, and therefore it is a straightforward demon narrative. And the way that it plays out, it plays out in the tenor of sort of post Hitchcock French psychological horror. So the premise plot wise is the premise plot wise is. A uh, two teen boys in East Germany, uh, as, as the workers' paradise is slowly sliding into the into ruin, um, or rapidly, uh, make a deal that one teenage boy, George, will give the other teenage boy, uh, I think Paul, his girlfriend, uh, because Paul wants her. And so George just says that in uh, if I come back and get ask for her back, you have to give her to me. And Paul says that's that's fine. And George says, or one just like her. And he says, okay, fine. So George makes the transfer by picking up another girl, leaves Paul's life. Paul hooks up with the girl. And 30 years later, we open with their beautifully successful marriage when George returns. And George, of course, is um, uh, dark-haired and smoldery and looks creepy and plays the film in a different acting style than everyone else. He's an obvious supernatural interruptor. He's from a world that our hero has left behind, not just East Germany, but also he has been involved in all kinds of shady things before he shows up as as uh, Paul's new boss at uh, the investment firm where they where they both work now. And the, the story then plays out in the sort of, you know, oh my God, this guy is, you know, actually plotting against me. He's using things that can only be described as, I mean, and the character openly says, He's he's the devil. He's you know he's he's from hell. There was an infernal pact. I sold my soul back thirty years ago, and now you know I'm, I'm going to be forced to collect. So it's got that sort of you know Faust narrative where it is just about the fair Marguerite and not so much about the eternal wisdom of necromancy. But again, it Dercourt has you know, at least two or three more twists left in his bow because he is like I say part of that really great 
current French tradition of the psychological uh, Hitchcockian style thriller. And I, I think that, again, it without actually showing you Hellfire, this is at the very least a naturalistic reading of the demon story. And at the very most, maybe he's, maybe he did turn into a demon. Who knows? And for those genre fans who like their supernatural elements less naturalistic and perhaps coming out of the screen to poke out their eye. Uh, It is Dario Argento's Dracula 3D, which unlike almost everyone who has seen Dracula 3D, you found much to admire in. I did find much to admire in. First of all, um, it's always refreshing to see one who understands that Dracula is a bad guy. So that right there gets, gets you points. Second of all, I'm not sure people who say it's a bad film have actually watched Dario Argento, because if it's a bad movie, it's a bad movie in the exact same way his great movies are, which is that the um, uh, sort of events seem arbitrary, the the film has sort of a weird dreamlike logic, it vastly overprivileges the look of the scene over any other consideration in the film, Uh, the the dubbing is mediocre. Uh, The only thing you could really ding this on against other Argento films is that he uses CGI instead of practical effects, which is a shame, given how great he was at practical effects back in his heyday. And um, some of the individual scene choices maybe are a little weird, such as the giant CGI grasshopper that Dracula turns into. But, again, if you're saying, oh, no one can do anything new with Dracula... And for those of you who are driving and missed it, that's giant CGI grasshopper yes. that Dracula turns into. Right. But... um uh, but it's, you know, it, it's certainly a choice that in the course of the film shocks you first off as a genuine cinematic shock, right? As a, as a terror. And only later on, admittedly not before the scene is over, do you say, <laughs> hold on, is that a grasshopper? <laughs> and Rutger Hauer, I don't know what was wrong with him, but he looked very tired. And he plays the Van Helsing. And when your Van Helsing visibly just wants to lean against the furniture and get his breath back, that may not be the the most energy you want out of out of the thing but the but the rest of the casting is is great it's closer to Bram Stoker and to Terence Fisher than it is to uh Francis Ford Coppola although he does denature one of the uglier tropes in Coppola's film and uh it's it's actually because he is following a story as opposed to just sort of filming until he's out of jujubes to press over the over the light and uh out of fake blood to pour on the actress he's actually it, in in a lot of ways, the film is sort of superior, certainly to his, to his later efforts, which have either been, you know, by the numbers completion of his trilogy, uh, like Mother of Tears, or have just sort of been aimless and not really gone anywhere. And I'm I think, not the world's biggest Argento fan, but it strikes me that complaining that an Argento movie is crazy is like complaining that Coen Brothers movies are ironic. Yes, or that uh, David Lynch movies are um, uh, disturbing. So, uh, next we come to a Russian crime drama. This is actually played Tiff, although I didn't see it. It was part of a whole series of films about uh, children being hit by cars. And in this case, uh, I take it it is a fast-paced uh, Russian crime drama. I'm always a little cautious about programming Russian films because they some of them are uh, really fast-paced and exciting, and some of them are still in the... Uh, slower uh, post-Soviet or pre-Soviet filmmaking yeah, mode, but this Tarkovsky one, uh, tradition. yeah, you found more exciting. Yeah, this one is is more exciting. It is a uh, you know a, a very classic cop gone you know cop makes a mistake and everyone pays for it type story. It's a a policier in that sense, 
And uh, my, my buddy Jim and I have been apparently cursed by a gypsy that we will see a Russian film at every festival, and then it's up to the Russians to deliver or not deliver. And so in this case, the gypsy was doing us a solid because the major um, turns out to have been, although my, my buddy Jim got out of it because he had to move that week. And so I saw this with my lovely wife, Sheila, who, when she saw the list of films that were on for Saturday, said, oh, man, I want to see that one about the Russian cop that runs over a kid and everything goes to hell. And so I said, well, your wish is my command, darling. And we went out. And the the film is actually, um, it's it, it's really strong. I mean, those sorts of movies depend on pacing, and they depend on casting, and on both senses. You know, the, Yuri Bikov really pays off. He casts himself as sort of the more corrupt foil, and really delivers his job as one of the two moral poles of the film. The other, of course, being the mother of the uh, kid that is killed at the beginning of the film. And it's it, it's really great. The, the The main character, in his Hamlet-y way manages to ruin everything, and as I mentioned to Sheila, the fact that he only directly kills two people in the film makes him sort of the Russian Bruce Willis. So it's pretty, uh, it's 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 pretty interesting uh, to watch all the way around, and it's it just as sort of a sense of place for the miserable, crumbling existence of of Russia outside uh, Moscow and Saint Petersburg. It is interesting to watch in that respect. Uh, so that's the Major by Yuri Baikov. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think the last one we'll talk about in this segment is uh, lesbian body horror from a director called Eric England, and the film is called Contracted. Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, I think that the general assumption of, amongst film critics, and probably by the director, since he was talking about spoilers when he was there, is the question of what exactly happened to our heroine, the, the, the young, beautiful lesbian, uh, who foolishly, at a party, uh, sleeps with a man... Uh, sort of a date rapey roofie type situation and uh gets a strange std and uh the 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 question of what exactly is happening to her is sort of the the mystery of the film so I won't spoil it but I will say that it's fairly obvious to any genre fan who watches it but from that perspective it's very interesting because you haven't seen a lot of this kind of genre monster treated in this kind of way and it plays it runs a really clever riff on the urban legend of the woman who sleeps with the necrophile and what happens to her. And uh, once you have uh, established that as your opener, which the film does, <laughs> there's really nowhere to go but down. And I think that uh, England uh, takes the ride down in a very controlled, but still a very, maybe Cronenberg light type way. It's body horror, but it that never quite goes to the level that Cronenberg probably would have pushed it, but it's still pretty awful. So these are films that are playing the festival circuit, which means in the next months or maybe year or so, these will wend their way out to art houses or video on demand or other outlets. Things that are currently playing in limited release that I would very quickly recommend to filmgoers who want to track something down more quickly. Choi Hawk's Young Detective D and the Rise of the Sea Dragon is a dizzying uh, Wu Shaw film that, uh, where he really comes to terms with the use of mixing CGI and wire work fighting and is uh, brilliant and crazy and uh, full of all kinds of nuts and excitement. It loses points only for not having Andy Lau in it. Uh, but as well we're seeing. Uh, there's a Filipino crime drama called On the Job. The premise of this is that there are hitmen who are being released from prison on a day release 
program in order to go kill people on behest of corrupt officials. Mm. Uh, this is such a compelling premise that A, it actually happened, and B, it's already been acquired for an American remake directed by Balthasar Karmakur. And then finally, there's a Korean historical epic called The Face Reader, uh, which is all about a bumpkinish descendant of former officials who are in eclipse, and he gets mixed up in politics by uh, demonstrating his mastery of physiognomy, of telling fortunes by reading faces, and mm. uh, learns a lesson about the dangers of getting caught between two powerful court figures, one of whom is described as a tiger, and the other who is described as a wolf. So those are uh, in theaters now on a few screens, and again, like most films these days, will permeate out into the filmosphere through video on demand and disc and so on. And that ends our most recent survey of the cinema hut. It's time once again to ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. George Pletz asks Ken and Robin, what are your suggestions for picaresque adventures with it getting harder to get everyone together for games? What do you think is the best way to do this? If you're meeting twice a month with a variable group, how do you keep it moving? Um, Robin, do you have any advices for this? I think this is perhaps relevant to both of our immediate experience, although maybe not your immediately current experience. So I think, first of all, there's a little bit of a definitional thing that we need to sort out between uh, picaresque, which is your sort of Tom Jonesian or a Jack Vanceian story of a, or a Don Quixote, for example, of a sort of character who goes uh, and has a series of sort of disconnected adventures, and they have kind of an ironic theme to them, and there's sort of a skeptical attitude toward the protagonist that you do not necessarily fully sympathize with him, and you're waiting as much for his uh, comeuppance or some sort of epiphany as anything else versus something that is just straight up episodic. And I think maybe George may be asking us more about how to do episodic play well uh, and not specifically how to do that particular tone where the character is a bit of a scoundrel or a fool and uh, he has a series of disconnected adventures and then uh, hits the... Uh, the wall in some way or another. Would you, uh, do you feel that's what's going on in that question, Ken? I think that the disconnected adventures is certainly the core of what, um, uh, George is saying. And the question of to what extent the picaresque, uh, mode requires the hitting of the wall and the scoundrelly main character, I think is, is open. I think it's like the Gothic, that, that those are sort of its defining characteristics, but people get away from it in, in the event. But I think that the episodic nature of, of play is sort of, as you can see by what he goes on to ask, that's sort of the core of what we're talking about. So yeah, I think, I think the, the question of how do you handle relatively self-contained stories with a possibly rotating, uh, gaming group and how do you, I guess, bring the whole thing together and make it a campaign as opposed to a bunch of individual dungeons. All right. So my first piece of advice would be to look at each individual episode and allow them to be standalone. If you are assuming a rotating cast, um, you maybe don't want to build them into a particular arc. You might want to accept the fact that you're running a strictly episodic, iconic campaign where the iconic hero cast differs from one episode to the next. And so it's like an 
old-time TV show before the dire botchkoization, as Ken refers to it, where things became serial and just uh, concentrate on telling self-contained stories featuring whoever shows up that night. And that means to make it self-contained, you have to imagine it to begin with as a fairly contained number of story points. So you might want to think of a premise scene, a development scene, and then what is the climax going to be that you're going to resolve by the end of that evening? And make sure there isn't a ton of story that they have to navigate in order to get that fun, satisfying hit of closure. So my first piece of advice would be start with three scenes and go from there. Yeah, the... um. The, 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 another trick that I find that is helpful with, uh, this sort of thing where you have a variable group and a bunch of possible, um, people who might or might not show up. You're not maybe playing every time. First of all, like Robin says, try to keep your episodes down to taking a minimum amount of time. Ideally one night, although that can be hard, especially if you are a sandboxy type player who likes to let the players touch all the parts of the setting before they discover the excitement. And, uh, you need to, if you want to keep things, you know, down to to one night or or, or two or two nights at best, um, you want to cut that off. You want to, at the very least, deliver the sandbox more as something that the player characters already know and have already explored, and just basically info dump them at the beginning so that they don't maybe have the fun of going around and touching everything, but they reach the conclusion that they hopefully normally will that there's a you know a, a maiden tied to railroad tracks or there's a a giant emerald the size of your head down in the dungeon or whatever it is that's going to get the story going, that they get there as early as possible. And if your players trust you, or if you are playing in a sort of James Bond-type uh, game where uh, M or a voice on the tape or Starfleet Command gives them an order and they have to go do it, that'll make your, your problem even simpler. Um, but the other thing that helps with that, I find, is uh, troop-style play, a la Ars Magica, where your players roll up two or three characters apiece so that for any given mission you can build a sensible uh, group of player characters to take it on. So if each character has, uh, as in Ars Magica, they have a wizard, they have a sidekick, and they have a meat shield, that gives you you know, the core for any sort of fantasy exploration or any sort of fantasy story. And it could be all wizards, it can be a, a mix of, of the batch, it could be all meat shields if it's a straight fight, you know, whatever it happens to be. And the uh, similar effect, right now I'm running a science fiction game using the CODA system from Decipher that uh, I co-designed back in the day. And so the players rolled up bridge crew, mission specialist, and uh, space marines. And at any given time, any given episode, we can figure out, of the players who did show up, whose characters can drive this story and whose characters can come along to meaningfully respond to it. And I think that gives you more flexibility than suddenly saying, oh my god, Steve's gone, so I can't have any magic in the adventure, because he he's playing the magician. Right. I would um, like to expand on a point you made earlier, which is about the level of sandboxiness, is that you not only want to cut down on the sandboxiness, but you want to feel free to control the pacing a bit more, because you're aiming for a hard exit at the end of every episode. So that in a game where you have a more stable player group and you can expect to be able to develop plot threads from week to week, you allow people to sort of get discursive and maybe bog down a bit in order to have the either the fun of getting out of that or the object lesson of getting out of bogged down. That if I was running a very episodic campaign with a 
undependable uh, cast every time that I would feel empowered to lead people more. So that would, first of all, I would give myself the power to start in media res so that you're not starting in the scene in the briefing room where the guy gives you the mission, but you're already in the first scene of the mission facing a challenge. And then you can sort of fill in the details of what's going on later on. You can just take as read because you need to take as read in order to move people through an endpoint for an episodic structure that they are going to engage with the premise. So you just tell them that they have engaged with the premise and that when they start to go off track into somewhere that does not seem like a fruitful avenue where you can improvise an alternate adventure that still ends on the same night, but rather just seems to be sort of a rabbit hole of contention or whatever, then I would just be much more aggressive about giving people a few moments to feel that tension or feel the sense of choice. And then more forcefully than I otherwise would move them back onto a path, not necessarily the path, not necessarily the three scene structure that I thought up to begin with, but a three scene structure that relates to what's going on. Something that will have a payoff by the end of the night, if if only a, a big fight scene that'll get everyone's adrenaline pumping. Right. And to, even if only retroactively, to uh, improvise the storyline so that the big thing that happens at the end of the story also resolves the story. Mm-hmm. So you don't have to railroad people, but you do have to take a firmer hand over the pacing, whether you're doing that on the fly or to uh, gently nudge people back toward your preparation, if that's the only way you're comfortable doing it. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan of, of sandboxes, I think we've talked about, and that's sort of my default style of play. So my picaresque uh, nod in this direction is pretty much just the troop style. I, I've i run co- convention adventures, which is what this has to feel like. It has to feel like a thing where there's a a four-hour time slot and everyone knows it, as opposed to a thing where, oh, it's Monday night, we're all getting together, we're going to play some game, and then we'll get together next Monday and play some more game. It has to feel more like a singular event and less like a, a part of a longer event, and that's true on a, on a social level as well as a story level, and I think that's sort of maybe one of the keys, is to make sure you have player buy-in for that level of, uh, like you say, not railroading, but maybe... Uh, story framing or, or story uh, uh, walling off other possibilities from or, or, or at least control such that when, as you say, a climax uh, is rearing its head, you can make sure that it develops the players before the end of the day. By default, I generally like to present players not with a possible win-lose situation, but with difficult choices where there are trade-offs involved in taking either choice. But if I was going to a strictly episodic structure, again, I would simplify that and would always go in thinking, what's the win? Mm -hmm. How can they feel that they have wrapped something up by the end of it? Uh, And so uh, difficult moral choices and uh, or even just sort of difficult tactical choices are things that have they may appear to be there, but you need to find an out and think of a way uh, as you're designing your preliminary adventure how do they win? How do they feel a sense, not just that the, they've been through something that developed and ended, but that they are taking away a win from it at the end, the way that hopefully an entire campaign of a non-episodic structure is uh, at its end, if it comes to an end rather than fizzling away, as so many of them do, has, again, a sense of this was worth the journey, that it is, you know, the ending of the 
a wire and not the ending of Lost. <laughs> to underline it and put a bow on it. I, I think that in terms of, you know, specific techniques at the table, I, your your notion of the three-act structure is very strong. Obviously, it's it's in everybody's blood, at least in Western storytelling, and it's how we expect to consume our episodic media. So I think there's going to be a level of player buy-in on that at that point, if you do it and you do it well. I think another thing to keep in mind for these sorts of adventures is that like episodes of original series Star Trek, if you're going to have closed-off stories, the individual story has to have a really great individual hook. There has to be a, a something really colorful and exciting, a planet that's just like ancient Rome, a, um, uh, a big boss fight with a Gorn, something that is going to be the thing that the players uh, remember and say, remember that one episode where we fought the Gorn, as opposed to, remember those Gorn, and they showed up, and then there was some thing, and another deal, and then maybe later we thought, that'd be awesome, and so we phasered them from far away. You, you want to make sure that there's some hooky thing that the episode can be about, as opposed to just, like every other episode. So if you're running, say, a Call of Cthulhu game, everything can't be, you find out about a ritual, you show up at uh, 1159, you bust it up with Tommy guns, repeat, right? You want to make sure that each ritual is different, each cult is different, each location is different. Maybe this cult, instead of being down in the cavern, is up in the tops of um, uh, a jungle, and so they you have to go up and fight on tree houses like in uh, Endor, or uh, you have uh, a cult that instead of summoning up uh, Cthulhu is trying to awaken every single person's reptile brain and turn the whole uh, uh, rave into a, an embodiment of Yig, or something that is going to be interesting and sexy and enough of a spin on the basic concept that the players recognize that this episode, to sort of continue your metaphor, is an episode of Star Trek, the original series, not an episode of Star Trek Voyager. Right. And what you can do to further that is when you're planning the campaign in the first place is sit down and give yourself a list of 12 hooks that are written in the style of a TV guide entry. Mm -hmm. So you want, you know, a one-sentence description that lays out the premise and either explicitly states or implies what the win condition at the end of it is. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, in the Cthulhu framework, one of the things can be, you know, disrupt a ritual, and then once you've done that, no more ritual disrupting, desummon a monster after you've done that, no more desummoning, and uh, find and destroy an artifact, and uh, come up with a, uh, a list of 12 very clearly different objectives that can all be part of a Call of Cthulhu campaign. And it may be that after that you uh, run out of separate different objectives and then find ways to find twists on them. But to begin with, that will really help clarify what you're doing as you design that three-act structure. Yeah, and um, you can get away with a little of it if you're playing something where the nature of the fight is still going to be interesting. So if you're like... Um, Let's say you're in, you know, a standard fantasy game, a fight with a dragon, a fight with a bunch of giants, a fight with a burrowing worm, a fight with a gelatinous cube. All of these are fights, but each of them has different tactical questions, and that's going to uh, spark interest as well. So you look for whatever aspect of your game that provides the, the sort of the mechanical juice as opposed to the narrative juice, and make sure you can activate that mechanical juice reliably and obviously in a way that doesn't run over the evening, but in a way that um, people who are there to play that game feel like they got that game session done as opposed to, you know, they have all these skills or all these mechanics sitting on the side of their uh, 
of their character sheet and they never got to use it. And maybe they're not going to be able to get back there until next month and they're going to feel like they sort of didn't get what they wanted out of uh, the game as a game as opposed to as an episode of a story. And for something very fighty like that, the you can have a big fight at the end, but what the fight then leads to in terms of the coda, in terms of the conclusion, can be different each time. Mm -hmm. So the fight with the giants can allow you to destroy a book. The fight with the dragon can allow you to save a princess. The fight with the ogres can allow you to reunite two warring clans. Yeah, as always, um, sort of keep uh, keep an eye on variety and uh, concision. And I guess those are sort of the keys to, to running a episodic-style campaign. And since we are now... <laughs> We're speaking at length and saying things over and over again. <laughs> we may be done. <laughs> of mysterious incense and the clatter of beads, the rattle of uh, chains, and the crack of lightning tells us we have entered the exciting and Argento-limbed confines of the genre hut. And within the genre hut, uh, Robin, I believe, wishes to explore aspects of genre that may or may not be problematical to our jaded postmodern and, one hopes, uh, relatively decent sensibilities. Uh, genres, of course, haven't been created in a time when none of that was true. Robin? Right. And when you say maybe problematic, you mean we're going to talk about the perhaps the most problematic uh, popular <laughs> uh, set of characters in the not actually literally pulp tradition, but everything about it is pulpy except its original means of publication, which was in a series of novels. And that's the character Fu Manchu and his nemesis, uh, Sir Dennis Nyland Smith. Uh, this came to mind because uh, TCM recently showed the uh, once rare but now restored and uh, acceptable enough to show on television again by means of distance and irony, the <laughs> 1934 Mask of Fu Manchu starring Boris Karloff as the evil epitome of uh, yellow peril mythology. And it is really quite a jaw-dropping film insofar as the already quite racist text of Fu Manchu and his enemies is dialed up to 11. And just when it, whenever you think that you've seen the most racist scene in the movie, there's another scene in the movie. <laughs> and uh, it has uh, Myrna Loy as his, at that time, unnamed evil seductress daughter. And it's a pre-code film, so the uh, sexual perversity is uh, just one millimeter uh, near the surface of the film. And on one level, it has a, you know, the kind of classic death traps and uh, puzzles and challenges and jut-jawed heroes that you expect of a Saturday morning hero. But indeed, uh, it is in a, a, a uh, wrapper that is uh, so blatant that it now uh, seems ridiculous. But even at the time, it was controversial. It was protested by the Chinese uh, government, for example, and, and, and well it ought to be. It even uh, ends with a sequence after the heroes dispatch Fu Manchu. There's still an entire room full of pan-Asiatic henchmen who were uh, uh, cheering Fu Manchu a moment ago. So our uh, 
jet jod western heroes uh, then use a laser beam to uh, massacre about two to three hundred henchmen, <laughs> which is not something you typically see uh, in a uh, putatively heroic presentation. So, Kim, what can you tell us about the history of uh, Sax Romare and uh, Fu Manchu in terms of why this uh, really pretty toxic set of tropes still um, maintains, despite everything, a sense of popularity and mystique. Well, I mean, Sax Romer is one of those guys who was, you know, a working writer in the great age of the Edwardian pulps. And um, I, to clarify, the novels were orig- originally serialized in a pulp magazine, or at the very least a uh, a, a dime magazine, the, the Storyteller. So they do, in fact, begin their, their pulp in the same way that Tarzan or Sherlock Holmes are pulp, in that they come out of that newsstand gotta get it done now tradition as opposed to out of sort of a even the more genteel tradition of Dracula which at the very least was published by a real publisher between hard covers first and so the um Sax Romer in addition to being you know just a a, a hard working writer was also an occultist uh, interested in the occult he may or may not have been a member of the Golden Dawn in its uh, desuetude in its later stages so he has that uh that fascination to him. He was, you know, he's a, he's a, he's a good working class kid who made good by, (laughs) by making fun of people who weren't the Irish and in, because he was writing for the English also who weren't the English. Although one suspects that, um, uh, Dennis Nayland Smith and Dr. Petrie are at the very least as caricatured in Sax Romer's mind as Fu Manchu is because they're, they're obviously, uh, such, uh, stereotypical English heroes that, uh, you, you get the sense that someone of, Romer's capacity for for stereotype is doing that on purpose as well. But yes, uh, bottom line, uh, the Fu Manchu stories are horribly, horribly racist, and there's no getting around it. You can't even pretend. The trouble is that unlike Lovecraft's most racist work, the Fu Manchu stuff is actually really fun to read. I mean, it, it, the the novels just racket along. Uh, you know, um, Sax Romer learn ha, needs to learn nothing from anyone on how to keep a page turning. The, the Fu Manchu stories, even down to, you know, the very latest ones, always have something just insane that's about to happen. So to use your parallel, that every time you think you've read the craziest thing that's going to happen in a Fu Manchu chapter, here comes another chapter. And uh, Romer was remarkably good at it. Obviously, all, uh, whatever it is, 13 of the novels are not as good as each other. But, you know, it the, the series stands up surprisingly well. I think it's not until maybe Island and Shadow, right, the 1940s, uh, series of Fu Manchus that they really start falling apart. But, for example, um, uh, I think it's President Fu Manchu, where Fu Manchu is assassinating Mussolini and Hitler to bring about a, a great European war because he knows that that will liberate the yellow race. And on the one hand, it's like, all right, now what now? <laughs> <laughs> yes, you, you had me at assassinating Hitler and Mussolini, but then, but oh, then you, you lost there's me always in the something. Print. It's always something. Um, the... Uh, the, 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 and so they're, they're just, they're just really, really readable. And I think that may be just what a lot of people responded to. And then obviously, every time Fu Manchu comes back culturally, it's because someone is worried about China. I mean, Fu Manchu is, is very much the stereotypical, uh, sinister Chinese guy in much the same way that Ronnie Cox is the typical uh, sinister white guy in, um, in every film. He, he's just, you know, there in his suit getting ready to, to, to clamp down on the good guys in the name of national security or 
corporate profits or both. And Fu Manchu has a, it speaks to racist fears in exactly the same way that uh, those characters speak to uh, class-based fears. And the trouble, of course, being that racism is contemptible. <laughs> and so it's very hard to separate the effectiveness of the trope with the fundamental nature of it. But, you know, the reason Fu Manchu is coming back on TCM and whatever is not just because people are ironically being able to distance themselves from it. I note that, you know, Song of the South is not coming back, for example. Um, but the, uh, but because there is a general sense that the Chinese are going to eat our lunch economically and our great Western civilization is all going to wind up uh, laboring in rice paddies for them or something. And that is why people sort of allow themselves to look at Fu Manchu in a way that they would not allow themselves to look at the uh, really other, you know, any of the many other racist works that came out of that period. Although I, I think it is, I think, you know, there's a big chunk of people who are enjoying that as a uh, piece of film history and are able to think it is funny because the group that it is viciously stigmatizing, at least in the Western world, is not as viciously stigmatized as it was at that time. Yeah, but again, I mean, uh, no one is uh, watching, say, you know, The Eternal Jew uh, and saying, oh, this is great, now that the Jews aren't viciously stigmatized, we can watch this ironically and hilariously. It's because it's speaking to actual cultural concerns, and I think because Fu Manchu is just a better story um, that, that it keeps coming back. I mean, it's sort of a, a one-two punch of cultural fear, which is perhaps to be deprecated, and really thrilling pulp construction, which I guess is to be praised even when in the service of Fu Manchu. I mean, Lord knows I have been fascinated by Fu Manchu ever since I saw, I think it was the Peter Sellers one, uh, back when I was a, 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 a mere teenager, and recognized that this was riffing on stuff that I hadn't seen yet. And so I went and tried to see as many of the Boris Karloff ones, or the, I think Warner Olin probably played him in a couple of these things, and um, uh, watch uh, as many of those and read the, the Romer novels, which were at that point being reprinted as part of the pulp explosion in the 70s. And, you know, I, I got bit. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big fan. I like later authors who attempt to sort of detour in Fu Manchu. Uh, there's a great novel called uh, Ten Years Beyond by Kay Van Ash, which is Fu Manchu versus Sherlock Holmes, uh, but attempts to sort of uh, treat uh, the um, <laughs> treat the character as a, at, at the very least, as a level of villain on the level of Moriarty, as opposed to the level of villain on the level of Fu Manchu, such that his villainy is more important than his race. And I think that maybe that's the way to save Fu Manchu, but at some level, it's probably a lost cause, and you just have to hope that everyone else is as tolerant of your claim of historical irony as you are, Robin. Right. Well, what you have to do is take Fu Manchu out of it and look at the structure, which was has been used in France at about the same time with Fantomas, which mm -hmm. is a pulp series where the villain is much more interesting and colorful and much more a driver of events and therefore it's about the mystique of villainy, than are the heroes. Uh, but Fu Manchu sort of occupied that space in English-speaking pop culture, but that it would be very interesting to play with the idea of a series that was about its master villain. It's just you can't have him be Fu Manchu, and you can't uh, have him, you know, substitute uh, some other uh, form of racism for the Yellow Peril, but you could have a... Uh, ultra criminal mastermind who could uh, drive a series without the iconic hero being as nearly as interesting as the iconic villain. The, I mean, that, that, that has happened. I mean, obviously it was happening at that time with Fantomas and with uh, Guy Boothby's Dr. Nicholas stories. The, the, the notion of the villain who's more interesting than the hero is, is a very strong 
uh, pulp tradition, and I think we see it now. There's at least two or three authors who are all doing Moriarty novels, for example, um, trying to sort of uh, do the story from the villain's viewpoint in in that way, but either for the sort of pulp charm of getting to write about a, a murderous uh, whoremonger and pretend that he's a good guy, and part of it is just the, you know, postmodern sense of play with the character and saying, what if we looked at this from Dracula's point of view? Wouldn't that be terrific? And nine times out of ten, of course, it's terrible, but uh, nine times out of ten, people's modern attempts to rescue Fu Manchu are also sadly not as effective as good old Sax Romer warning us about the peril from the East uh, was. And, th- and that's the real shame with it, because you know, with one or two exceptions, the Moriarty novels now are pretty forgettable. With one or two exceptions, the most of this modern, you know, denatured Dracula stuff is, is pretty forgettable. But when you go back to the original texts and you look at uh, not just Fu Manchu, but you look at Dr. Nicola or you look at um, Fantomas, or at least in the one or two novels that I've read in translation, th- there's a real there's a real sort of actualness to it that is not done for postmodern reasons. It's done because they had to sell another chapter of this or else they couldn't afford their opium or whatever it was that uh, that they were addicted to. Bourbon, in some cases, one hopes. And I guess the other way that you could possibly, you know, detour in, uh, Fu Manchu is to have a, a story set in China with a heroic Wang Fei Hung or Ip Man style figure and have a, a sort of a secondary character among the uh, British imperialist bad guys who uh, goes away to write his series of pulp novels uh, based on the hero of our story, who, of course, he's then going to uh, viciously slander and turn into his exemplar of all things evilly oriental. Well, that's another possibility, though, because obviously the corrupt Mandarin who uses black magic and secret murder is the standard bad guy in pretty much all wuxia and Hong Kong, you know, historical films anyway. So making that guy Fu Manchu and your hero, you know, Jet Li in one of his numerous incarnations, or Jackie Chan, is, I I think that might be another way to do it, is just to write it with no white viewpoint characters. Right, Well, and that's the 70s uh, Shang-Chi comics from from Marvel, where they tried to uh, mitigate Fu Manchu by uh, making the hero also an Asian character. So I think we have uh, uh, explored uh, this dark corner of the pulp tradition uh, well enough and can uh, move on to our final segment. The whirring of chronotons and the clacking of time gears indicates that once again we're in proximity to Ken's time machine. This is the temporal vehicle that Time Incorporated uses to send Ken back into history to alter, edit, and adjust it. And in this case, they have a preliminary uh, question, and then after that they'll be looking for an action plan. And so the preliminary question is, which sacking of Rome would, if prevented, have the most salutary benefit? Well, I think that... I would have to come down to one of two sacks of Rome to be the salutary benefit. And I think my first offer uh, in, my, um, in, the, in the opening scene where the, 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 the head of Time Incorporated is there with his shirt sleeves rolled up and his uh, suspenders and his, you can't do this height, You're, you've broken the law once too many times, you, you've, uh, the, the laws of causality aren't, aren't your playthings type deal, would be uh, to suggest that the actual sack of Rome that would have uh, the most salutary effect, if prevented, was the sack of Rome 
by the Germans in 1527, which, amongst its other bad effects, crippled the, uh, the, the, the papacy's prestige to, in favor of the emperor and allowed the emperor to move uh, violently against the Reformation, thus setting off, well, what turned out to be about 150 years of civil war in Germany, uh, leading eventually to the, the Thirty Years' War. And the other thing that it did, of course, was it ended the Roman Renaissance. It pretty much put paid to almost the entire Italian Renaissance. Ve uh, Venice, I think, kept, uh, because it had a lagoon and couldn't be reached by filthy Germans, uh, it, it, it kept going. But all the, the mainland cities of Italy were pretty much artistically second-rate until Caravaggio, and that's another hundred years. So you have a real artistic cost to the sack of Rome by uh, the German mercenaries who were at that time nominally under the command of the Emperor Charles V and technically under the command of a Frenchman named Charles uh, Duke of Bourbon. And Charles Duke of Bourbon cleverly got himself shot in the head at, during the Siege of Rome by Benvenuto Cellini. And therefore, his men with no effective command, when they broke into Rome, pretty much uh, sacked the whole place to the, wall, to the bare walls, killed virtually the whole Swiss Guard and lots of other people. And that was a pretty serious blow to Western civilization, I think. Well, going to a Renaissance poll certainly earns you left field points. Mm -hmm. um, so how would you uh, prevent that? Well, the trouble with preventing that one is it's nearly impossible. There is literally <laughs> no one in the entire army of what's called the, the League of Cognac. Those are the guys that were the opponents of uh, the, the Holy Roman Emperor, who is worth a damn in terms of commanding troops. Uh, and short of just basically going back and running the entire war myself, which I think is probably outside my, my remit and my capabilities, um, there's, there's not a lot you can do. The, the Holy Roman Empire at this point has got pole position demographically. It's got pole position, um, uh, in terms of, 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 of the military technology at the time. It's got the Lons Connects, uh, in, in Germany and lots of them to recruit for relatively little money. Uh, France is, uh, <laughs> the, the Pope has cleverly imprisoned, uh, Francis I after he invaded Italy the first time. And so Italy is in chaos. France is, uh, badly weakened. And uh, the Charles V is really the only strong actor on the scene. And I don't think that there is a good way to prevent the sack, with the possible exception of moving Charles, Duke of Bourbon, two feet to the left when Benvenuto Cellini is up on the walls. Yeah, I was going to ask, is, can you just, like, hire Cellini to decorate a Nautilus shell for you so he won't show up that day? <laughs> That's right. Yeah, get, keep Cellini up late um, uh, drinking and arting so that his aim is wobbly when he goes up on the walls to shoot at Charles III. But the, the, the Duke of Bourbon is still, I mean, when you look at the rest of his career, I'm not sure he could have stopped the sack even if he'd been sitting on the, on the sign passing out uh, please don't sack Rome leaflets. I, I, I think that the guy was just was just nugatory, and the part where he was dead was more of a, you know, the tiny leash taken off the Doberman rather than the uh, great linchpin on which the sack turns. The sack of Rome that I suspect my Time Incorporated bosses were looking at was something along the lines of the sack of Rome by the Vandals in 455, and the way that you obviate that, and that's the sack of Rome that everyone's heard about. The Vandals showed up, and now we have the word Vandal, basically, as a result of, of their sack of Rome, and it was the sort of um, uh, DVD remake, director's cut, full commentary, double track Criterion edition of the Sack of Rome in 410 by Alaric the Ostrogoth, which, besides sending sort of a signal to the world that 
the Roman Empire was indeed in a bad way. A sackable, as it was. was the, the sacking was now an option, was um, uh, was not particularly important. But the sack of, of Roman 455 really tore the heart out of Rome's chances ever of coming to a a, a sensible understanding with, with the German tribes. That, that was the moment at which it was going to be German tribes on top of Roman ruins, not Germans and Romans building yet a third Roman Empire. And the reason that that happened is because the Emperor Valentinian, and never was there a person who deserved to have his city sacked by Vandals more, uh, had murdered Aetius, the guy who beat the Huns at Chalon in 451, and <laughs> as, as one will when one murders one's only competent general, was left without a competent general between him and an army of Vandals. And the way that one well, would... in, in fairness, though, if you're a Roman Empire emperor, the synonym for competent general is guy who might try to kill me and take over. And in fairness, there there is um, uh, there is some possibility, but in this specific case, Aetius had uh, his son had married Valentinian's daughter. So, in theory, if Valentinian could have just done the world a favor and died of old age, Aetius's son could have become emperor, and then we would have had you know, at the very least, a possibility of a new dynasty of not horribly inbred, incompetent Roman emperors. And at the best, we would have had a series of sensible generals who have uh, a, a relatively good way of dealing with barbarians, which is uh, bribe them when you uh, can and beat them when you can't, which is the way, the way they kept the Byzantines in power for another thousand years or so. So I think that if you lure Valentinian and his prefect Petronius Maximus, who's the other guy behind the murder of Aetius, and you, Valentinian was a big fan of sorcery and necromancy, and I think that if you say that you can summon up the ghost of Julius Caesar or something, uh, he will show up in a, in a closed curtained room with his buddy Petronius Maximus, and then you just uh, make sure that the fire has got maybe a little more henbane in it than your standard witch fire ought to, and with your cunning 22nd century uh, nose filter gear, you stand there intoning Latin while Valentinian and uh, Maximus expire, basically by doing witchcraft. And how horrible is that? And it's a good thing that Aetius's young son is here to lead Rome to glorious new days. And I think that's the way you evade the sack of 455. Certainly, Aetius will have to fight a war with the Vandals because one of the things that caused the Vandals to sack Rome is Valentinian taking his daughter away from uh, the the, the uh, King Genseric of the Vandals and marrying her to uh, the son of Petronius Maximus. And that is what got uh, uh, Genseric of the Vandals so mad. So he's probably not going to be super happy if Aetius' son gets to marry Placidia. And I don't know if Placidia had anything to recommend her besides being the, the key to the Roman imperial throne, but obviously she doesn't deserve the kind of rough treatment that history seems to have passed out to her. Uh, yeah, it's not like she would have been uh, choosing what was going on. No. Um, her statue, she looks very nice, but that may have just been one of those statues you make for someone whose dad can have you killed. So what are the uh, beneficial effects of this alteration of the timeline? Well, if you alter the one in 455, what you get is, like I say, the, the possibility, although it's still you're, you're, you're still dancing along demographic problems and other things, but you get the possibility of Aetius being emperor in fact, if not in name. You get him raising up you get some degree of stability on the throne because no one's going to try uh, conclusions with Aetius. The the way that Valentinian killed him was literally to wait for Aetius to brief him on military preparedness. And since he couldn't have a weapon in the presence of the emperor, the emperor stabs him himself. Which, 
I, I guess you have to admire that. You it was know, a personal touch that, involved. That at level least. of getting it done, you know, and not turning it over to someone. But still, the uh, there was a, a, a senator standing by listening to the to the briefing, and Valentinian turns to him and says, "You didn't see anything." And the senator says, "All I saw is that with your left hand, you've cut off your right." <laughs> <laughs> and, and so, you know, since uh, Valentinian didn't then have that guy that killed, took some you, Roman cojones to say that exactly. It, it, that I think maybe with that guy and uh, and Aetius, you have the the core of of a Byzantine style revival of at the very least an Italian Gallic uh, uh, kingdom. Maybe you don't get to keep. In, Spain. in fact, that riposte is so apt that I bet the guy thought of it uh, weeks later and had it added to and the then, And then noted it down, uh, tell Edward Gibbon this. <laughs> but yeah, the, the response was pretty general in the Roman aristocracy that that was a terrible, terrible idea. They were ready to support Aetius, which is why when the Vandals do show up, no one in the Roman aristocracy bothers to defend the city, and they just throw Valentinian out, or, or not Valentinian, rather, they throw Petronius Maximus, who by now claimed uh, the the imperial uh, throne. They threw him out of the out of the city and said, "Do what you want with him, vandals." And then the vandals <laughs> did that, and then they came in and sacked the place to the bare walls because they were, after all, vandals and had a, uh, a, a an eponym to coin. They're not just going to stop with uh, turning Petronius Maximus into Petronius Minimus, <laughs> right? Or Petronius Mabitimus, um, even. Yeah, no, they um, they very thoroughly sacked uh, Rome for fourteen days, and they brought a number of uh, Romans to North Africa to be slaves. Which, if one is a Carthaginian, I suppose one says, "Ha ha! The worm has turned," but because the Vandals' uh, capital was pretty much on the site of old Carthage. So uh, let's say that your best case uh, scenario, positive effects, indeed occur. What uh, ripples does that have into the uh, timeline going uh, further? Well, the I think the main thing that it does, because you are at some point going to see france turn more germanic than gallic and and latin that's just demographics working again you're going to see the same sort of thing happen in italy a little less but you don't have you you, you don't have a situation where justinian then wastes the entire treasure of the byzantine empire trying to reconquer the west because the west is not prostrate right the west is not you know covered in bad-smelling barbarians, it's covered in something that Justinian has to say, yeah, that's pretty much the Roman Empire, that's cool, and is then able to uh, whale on Arabs or Persians or someone and maybe obviate the destruction of the Byzantine Empire uh, a few millennia later. I think that you get, at the very least, another hundred years of good government and sensible economics, well, to the extent that they had that in uh, the late Roman Empire, but you don't have... Um, uh, village-based feudalism, which is not good for anyone, uh, even the guys who are running it, um, and you and you have a real chance at seeing that sort of nascent recovery of of Latin and Western culture that you saw with people like Cassiodorus and Boethius. You maybe they can have more people around them. Maybe there's a, another flowering of of literature, if not maybe of uh, decorative art. But certainly, you you get a, a cultural renaissance that then strengthens that part of European society that says, hey, we're all in this together, as opposed to that part of European society that says, hey, guess who's the only man in the room with a sword? So having seen to the elevation of Emperor Aetius, uh, and before the uh, time machine revs up again, is there a mystery of that period and place that you want to have answered before you leave? The, the great mystery of that place is who actually killed Adel of the Hun. Was it actually just... Um, the excitement of uh, betting his thousandth wife that caused him to uh, blow a gasket and and stroke out, 
Was it a clever poison by a, a Roman or Byzantine uh, official who managed to get it into his food? Was it a, a palace coup? What's what's going on with the death of Adela? That is the most interesting thing that's happening, and it's happening kind of right across the Rhine River from from where Aetius is going to be straightening things out. Or actually, it happened. To, I think technically it happened like two years before the sack didn't in this timeline. But I still want to know what happened to to, to Adela, and even if I can't, you know, just. <laughs> be a peeping Tom in the back of the royal uh, caravanserai when Adela does, in, uh, does indeed stroke out. I'll bet Aetius, because he knew a bunch of Huns, he had people in his, in his, um, uh, in his household that were Hunnic uh, nobles, they probably could have gotten me the straight scoop on what happened to Adela, and I won't have to wait for Jordanes to write it down uh, 50 or 60 years later. Uh, well, with uh, that little footnote taken care of, and the history of Western civilization put on a uh, somewhat straighter and narrower path, I think Time Incorporated can applaud you for your efforts, and allow us to conclude yet another podcast. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Engine Publishing. Dork Tower. Pro Fantasy Software. And Pelgrane Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Help keep this Gollumoffrey going by clicking the Donate button at KenAndRobinTalkAboutStuff.com. Exploit our reach by advertising with us. Grab the rate sheet at our site. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. Stuff. <laughs>